Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Report, a program designed to bring to you experts in various parts of the cannabis business to keep you informed. Let's look and see who's joining the conversation this week. Joining us in our Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape is Gary Allen, the CEO of New Frontier Data, which is the sponsor for this segment. He's going to talk about changes that are rapidly taking place in the cannabis marketplace for businesses. Should be an interesting interview. Next, we have Gerald Marion, who is the author of the book, Always Eat After 7 p.m. When we asked him why he wrote the book, he said, People need to elevate dietary consciousness as a need to stay healthy. It became important like never before because of the pandemic. At the same time, state legalized cannabis products have found their way on to new menus, even at home. This article might change your thinking about cannabis and your diet. Next up is Sarah Payen, who is one of the top 50 women in weed. Sarah is an educator, public policy advocate, and a writer and a stage three colon cancer survivor. Sarah brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to the program. A nine-year industry veteran with over 16,000 hours of experience guiding and educating consumers about cannabis. And in our last segment, Dustin McDonald is the acting policy director for Americans for Safe Access, which works to ensure safe and legal access to cannabis, marijuana, for therapeutic use and research. Far greater than half of the states permit medical marijuana. As a result, many states are seeing an increase in tax revenues. This interview will help you gain a perspective on how the fledgling industry has had to learn to adapt and blossom at the same time. If you don't have enough time to listen to this show in entirety, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section, and listen to this show and hundreds of others to keep yourself informed as to what's happening in the cannabis business. I'm Dan Perkins. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation. And today we're dealing with the Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Space, a section of our program sponsored by New Frontier Data, the global leader in cannabis data. And joining us today is Gary Allen, the CEO of the company. Good afternoon, sir. Hello, Dan. How are you? Always great I'm to be fine. here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to have anybody from your company with us. You said to, in the pre-show you wanted to talk about the need for education. What did you mean? Well, we, you know, in our conversations over the last few weeks, you and I have talked a lot about who, who are the consumers, you know, where are the consumers, how to identify consumers. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is really important for brands, for operators, retail, you know, retail operators, and for product manufacturers is to educate the consumer and really want to talk about the importance of educating the consumer. So in educating the consumer, um, there's a, as you and I talked before we went on the air, the, 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 the thirst for information about what's going on in the cannabis spaces is driving our, our listeners to record numbers. And, and that's a good thing. But what, what we're finding is that people, they don't know. Maybe this is the wrong way to say it, Gary, but it's the way it comes to my mind. Who do I trust that's telling me the right thing for me? And uh, and so education is important. This um, it's like the the, the industry is being reborn again because more and more people are now beginning to look at cannabis 
even though it still hasn't been done with federally, all the discussion in the public media about getting it done has piqued interest in a lot of people. But where where do people go to get educated, Gary? So I mean, it's incumbent really uh, upon – it starts at the product manufacturing, right? It starts at why are we manufacturing the cannabis products? I think first it's important for us to to, to, to take a step back and understand that – there, there are kind of two schools of thought, right? One is obviously for medical purposes, you know, a doctor, um, an experienced practitioner with cannabis. And, and medical cannabis has been around for a couple of three decades. And so there's, they are not actually hard to find and to understand how cannabis can help you medically. There's also the idea, though, that, that as this becomes a huge consumer market, which it is, as we mm-hmm. talked about before, and of course, we're a data company, so I'm going to give you a couple of quick data points. As we talked about before, 2020 saw a 42% increase in, in cannabis use, which that equates to about $20.3 billion in retail sales. Wow. Now, the important number to our conversation is that $20.3 billion is about 40 million consumers. So this is not just a medical consumption. This is not just recreational consumption or adult use consumption, as we talk about in the industry. This is a mix of both. But what Mm -hmm. it is is consumerism. And like every other consumer product, the manufacturers and the retailers, it's incumbent upon them to communicate to to the consumers that they want to reach and educate those consumers as to what they are trying to do. What what product are they introducing in the market that solves a problem, that gives them effect, that gives them that the effect that they're looking for. Cannabis, like every other ingredient base or every other con- consumable, is going to be result-driven. Right? So how, you know, how is this product going to make me feel? How do I consume this product? Edibles are, you know, edibles obviously is a very growing uh, vertical market within or, you know, a discrete market within the cannabis consumer market uh, right. having, you know, for the first time in, in some markets surpassed flour as a consumable, people don't understand how to eat edibles, right? Do I eat an entire bag of gummies? Do I have one? <laughs> do, I have half a, do I have half a chocolate bar? Or do I have one quarter of a chocolate bar? And, right. and so that there's a huge move to get people interested in the industry. And I want to make sure and, you know, we really, as, as our job has always been at New Frontier Data to, to, to ensure that the right information is out there. And this is very, very important in the education, that, that we don't skip a step and go from product manufacturing direct to, you know, trying to sell uh, as many as possible at the lowest price as possible, that we, for, we don't forget that like every other mature market, and if we want this market to, to mature and to grow, the consumers are going to have to be educated and they're going to have to know what they're going, what they're getting for the money that they're spending before they try it. And unfortunately right now there's so much trial and error um, right. that, that it creates a lot of confusion. What role, question, what role does your company have in educating consumers about what's going on and what they should be doing and if you're, if so, how are you doing it, and how do they take advantage of it? Sure. So, 
New Frontier Data as a company, we're, we're a B two B company, business to business. Right? Um, uh, we very, you know, very rarely do we interact directly with the consumer. Um, the focus in which in in this particular channel of conversation that we're talking about, the focus for us is really to help the manufacturers understand the consumers. So while I said we really don't interact with the consumers, it's a little bit mis not misleading, but it's not necessarily true. For our market research, we have interviewed more than 20,000 consumers of CBD and THC over the last three years in live interviews. And so that's how we, we ask the consumer what they want. You know, and, and we ask them you know, 50 to 100 questions, and, and we have in-depth in conversations with those consumers. But we do that in effort to educate the businesses that are in a, going to interact with those consumers. And so... What role do we play very directly? We educate and we, and, and we, we produce information and disseminate data to educate the product manufacturers, the retailers, and the advertising brands on how to educate their consumers and what their consumers want to hear about. You have the most incredible database I've ever seen in 50 years of marketing. It's, 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 it's just amazing. And uh, um, so do you think that the the – new generation of manufacturers and growers and distributors are more in tune to their responsibility of educating their consumers than perhaps the previous generation? Absolutely. So, you know, this in 2020, the, the, the pandemic and the kind of global slowdown of 2020 really had some amazing effects on the cannabis industry. One, of course, as I said earlier, we saw a huge increase in personal use um, and, and cannabis use, 40 some, 42% uh, to 44% nationwide. Um, so that's a lot of information from the consumers about what they're consuming. The other thing that we saw was the mature comp- that the companies that treat themselves like mature product manufacturers and mature brands, they went and asked for help of the data companies like us or brand accelerators. We said we have agencies, the holding companies, the marketing holding companies, what we have seen is a huge opportunity uptick in um, brands, product manufacturers coming to us before they either create their product to help them test some of the theories of the product, you know, some of the, the assumptions of the product creation process, identify what types of consumers would actually be interested in that product, how many consumers in each market, help them prioritize which markets to go into. And inevitably, in those conversations, consumer education uh, becomes, becomes a, a topic, a focused topic. Um, and so we really do, again, we, we address helping the, the, the market educate the consumers by helping the brands understand who the consumers are before they get into the market. Another great interview, sir. Thank you so much for your time. And a pleasure to be a part of the show. Yeah. What, what um, would you say? I, I know I read a lot of your research and you sent it to me and I appreciate that. Um, is, is, I think a lot of the stuff that you have, the free, free research that you have on your website could help consumers, even though it's not written for consumers, it, it's provide education and information. Um, so they can go to newfrontierdata.com and they can, see some of these free reports and read them if they want to or not. Absolutely. At newfrontierdata.com, if you go into our industry report section, 
They're, we always offer a number of them for free on the website um, for the operators and the business people in the marketplace. Our Equio platform houses every, every report we've ever done since 2014. It's a pleasure to have them with you. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Dan. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome to the conversation. And joining us today, again, is Joel Marion, who's written a book on diet and exercise and uh, amazing book about how we can eat and what we can eat and all the myths and mistakes that are out there in terms of dieting and exercise. Joel, thank you for joining us today. Joe, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So let's talk about, first of all, let's give the audience uh, the, the commercial. W what is the name of the book and where can they get it? It's called Always Eat After 7 p.m. Um, so the title kind of says it all. And the tagline is the revolutionary rule-breaking diet that lets you enjoy huge dinners, desserts, and indulgent snacks while burning fat overnight. And you can learn all about it and buy it at joelmarion.com. So it's just J-O-E-L-M-A-R-I-O-N.com. And then it is available in bookstores as soon as they start reopening. Terrific. You know, I, I have to tell you, when I heard about this book, the idea that you could eat all this stuff even after 7 o'clock, I've been told by doctors and nutritionists, starve yourself after after 7 o'clock. I have uh, type 2 diabetes, and uh, they're very concerned about what I eat after dinner uh, because it raises my triglyceride level and my uh, A1C levels. But I, I'm going to get your book and read it and, and make, make some adjustments. Tell us about why you wrote the book, and then tell us about what the book can do for our listeners. Well, I wrote the book because of my own personal health challenges of not wanting to diet, you know. So I always say, what's the first three letters of the word diet? <laughs> it just they're just not realistic for the long haul. So that was the main inspiration for the book is my own personal health struggles as I got older, had a family and was running a business. I just didn't want to diet. And so I started uh, going against the grain uh, because I did a bunch of research and uh, compiled over 90 peer reviewed published research studies in my book. This is the gold standard of, of research studies. And I started skipping breakfast and using a form of intermittent fasting and eating my largest meal at dinner time with something that I call super carbs and enjoying a healthy dessert afterwards. I started snacking on something sweet or salty, which I have a bunch of recipes in my book, right before bed using a pre-bedtime fat burning snack. And 16 weeks later, I'd lost 46 pounds. So that was the inspiration for the book. That's amazing. 16 weeks, 47 pounds. And you didn't have to order special food and, and uh, uh, go, to, go to meetings and counseling and all that stuff. It's just all in your book. It's all there. And, you know, if you're a little bit more anal and you want to count the calories and all that, we obviously break it all down and simplify it inside the book. But we also provide options where you don't necessarily have to count calories at all. 
So it's just a matter of controlling your portion sizes the right way. When you use the right food timing and you use the right food combinations together, you don't have to eliminate entire macronutrients. You can keep your body in a fat burning uh, environment. You can keep your metabolism boosted. And I would argue that you can burn fat faster because you're giving your body all the food groups. Like when you eliminate carbs, for example, like a keto or a paleo diet, it only takes one week before leptin and thyroid hormones decline 50%. These are the two hormones that regulate your body weight and control the speed of your metabolism. So it's like super important to make sure that you regulate. Well, glucose from carbohydrates are actually a building block of these hormones. So you just have to strategically put them in your diet the right way. So do you, in your book, do you have menus that people can look to to, to start uh, on the process that, that makes it easier for them to transition into what you have to do? Everything's in there. Yeah, menus, meal plans, grocery list, uh, over 70 recipes. It's all there laid out step by step. So when you were devising this, uh, and I'm, I don't mean to put you on the spot, I'm just curious, because there have been so many diets and quick weight loss deals and everything else, which I'm sure you're obviously aware of. But um, did you ever fall off the wagon in, in your 16 weeks? Oh, yeah, a few weekends I get carried away. But I think, you know, this goes back to the philosophy of being healthy in general. Um, I always say the best diet pill that you can take is consistency because there's no such thing as perfection when it comes to diet, exercise, and weight loss. We're all going to fall off track. We're going to have those bad days. We're going to have those bad weekends. The key is you, you get yourself back up, you dust yourself off, and you start over again. Most of us use that as an excuse to Great time in their life. They're waiting for everything to be just right. You know, I'm in a struggle right now with this. So as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to start my diet. Well, I have news for you. There's never going to be a perfect time in your life to start a diet. The time is always now. I mean, that's, that's great advice because uh, my nutritionist who I worked with when I was diabetic, uh, with diagnosed with a type two diabetic, she said, I, I, I want to help you live a full and rich life but I also understand that there will be times for various reasons that you're going to go off the wagon and that's okay. As long as you, as you said, get back on the wagon as soon as possible and get back to your discipline. But the holidays are a particularly difficult time, Christmas and new year's and Thanksgiving. And, uh, uh, realize that, uh, if you have a, such a diet that you're so restricted that you don't enjoy life, and eating is a very important part of life, then it's, you're not going to be on it very long. <clears throat> so um, how long has the book been out? It was actually came out in March, but we delayed the campaign to launch the book because of COVID-19, because obviously distribution channels were clogged up, and so was exposure. Sure. Um, so, it's, so it's actually been out since March, so it is available. And are you getting, uh, you said it was available on Amazon. Has it been out, been out long enough to get any reviews from Amazon? Just a dozen reviews on there Probably right not. now. Uh, yeah, just a dozen, but we're working on obviously getting more. We just started doing these interviews, and we're just now sending people and driving people to the Amazon store to buy the book. So we're hoping to get more reviews. I mean, obviously, then we have the, it has to get delivered, and then people actually have to implement it. And so, right, time. right. I understand. So when you were going through this 47 pounds in 16 weeks, did I get that right? 
It was 46 pounds in 16 weeks. 46 pounds in 16 weeks. Is there anything that you used to do or eat that you couldn't do in your new lifestyle? And do you miss it? Oh, well, this is the beauty of all this is that you still get to cheat, right? Like we just talked about, like you were talking about, you know, when you fall off the wagon. Well, I have a whole chapter called Cheat Your Way Thin. It's all dedicated to the science behind strategic cheating. And so actually purposely having these cheat meals, and if you're an exerciser, we give you a cheat day. Um, as long as you're not binging and stuffing yourself and doesn't going crazy, you want these cheat meals because they prevent something called metabolic slowdown. And this is what suppresses those two hormones I was talking about, leptin and thyroid hormones. So by strategically cheating and indulging, you know, you don't have to forbid any foods. You just don't want to go crazy when you cheat. And uh, when you do this, you provide your body with the extra calories that prevent the metabolism from slowing down while dieting. And then you also provide your body with the glucose necessary, which is the building blocks for the thyroid and leptin hormones. So it's like a fat burning hormonal reset mm -hmm. every week. So if, if I could, uh, if, if I could ask you, uh, I want to ask you a, a question. Um, I had to have my thyroid taken out because I had a goiter that was well advanced and they couldn't, they couldn't take the goiter out without taking out the thyroid. So I have a, uh, Synthroid is, is my thyroid thyroid supply and it's been, you know, seven years and they constantly are changing it because my, my levels go all over the place. Is that a particular challenge for me if I want to use your program? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge no matter what you do, right? So um, with that being said, we do, obviously, these. this diet is set up to cater to your hormones. And I think that's like one of the number one issues with restrictive diets um, is not only they're difficult to adhere to, they create these deficiencies by eliminating these entire food groups. So I think that's one of the main keys about always eat after 7 p.m. is that it does include, you know, every single macronutrient. You're not leaving those macronutrients out. But it's, you know, so you're doing everything you can to optimize your hormones. I mean, for you, you're in a situation where you're just going to have to constantly monitor that, unfortunately, because the thyroid does regulate your metabolism. So it's going to be a challenge for you no matter what. Right. Most of the products today that either have or don't have trans fats or have a pretty prominent place on the label that it's trans fat free. Um, is there, is there, uh, we talked about foods that are not good for you. Is there a particular food that's core that's really, really good for you? Protein. So I think this is, as we age, this is the number one underutilized macronutrient pound for pound, ounce for ounce protein is the best fat burning food. And there's several reasons why. Number one, your body can use protein for energy through a process called gluconeogenesis. So a lot of vegans and vegetarians out there believe that, oh, your body can't use protein for energy. No, that's, that's one of the first things you learn in a nutrition class. That your body can use protein for, number two, it prevents muscle loss. And we, we all lose muscle, it's called sarcopenia as we age. And we start losing muscle, it prevents muscle. Three, your body burns twice as many calories when you consume protein. It has a higher TEF, which is called the thermic effect of food. So your body will literally burn double the calories just in the act of digesting protein than it would when you digest fats or carbohydrates. And then people who eat a high protein snack before bed gain more muscle than those who don't 
They have more stabilized blood sugar and research shows they also can help you induce a little bit deeper sleep through the insulin response by coaxing the brain to release more melatonin and serotonin. So, Joe, uh, is there one particular thing that's really most important as what we should be eating that perhaps we may not be? What do you think? I think the number one most underutilized macronutrient that people underestimate is just protein intake. And there's several reasons for this. Um, the number one is that when you manipulate other macronutrients, if you're trying to shed some unwanted pounds, you can use protein as an energy source. This is called gluconeogenesis. It's something that your body will convert protein into glucose for energy in, in the absence of carbohydrates. Now, with that being said, that's just one of the many reasons. Protein is the most thermic macronutrient. In other words, it has the highest what's called TEF, thermic effective food. So when you eat protein, the very act of digesting it burns twice as many calories as when you digest fats or carbohydrates. So by eating more protein, you naturally increase your metabolic rate. And then research also shows that it's going to prevent muscle loss. We all lose muscle through a process called sarcopenia as we age. And people who consume 20 to 40 grams of protein before bed actually increase their overnight muscle protein synthesis. So they gain more muscle and they wake up with more stable blood sugar. So there's several, several reasons to include a high quality protein source in every single meal that you eat because not only is it going to do all this, research shows that protein eaters just eat less. It helps you curve your hunger and your cravings. Is there a particular form of protein that's better than others? Well, there's no doubt when it comes to the quality of a protein and the amino acids uh, profile, red meat is going to be the best. Um, and you just have to be selective about your cuts. So whether it's a fatty or a lean cut is not really as important as if it is a farm fed or, uh, you know, was raised in what kind of environment it was raised in. So any type of grass fed beef is going to pack the most punch. And the research behind red meat linking to cancer and obesity and heart disease and all that is really misguided. And when they looked, did meta-analysis of over 500,000 people across the globe, consumption of red meat, as long as it was not processed, was not linked to any type of cancer or heart disease. It's the processed red meat with the chemicals in it and the preservatives that are leading to the heart disease. And so, so I think that or a high-quality protein powder, that way you know you're getting a complete uh, protein powder, whether it would be plant-based or not. Well, I obviously recommend a whey or casein protein. This is what's shown to work best in the research. So you're talking about, for example, like ground, ground meat would be less desirable than whole meat. And lean meat better than fatty meats, you know, like filet versus prime prep or um, ribeye? Honestly, it really depends on the combinations that you're using. So you just have to keep in mind that if you have a starch with that meal, you want these glucose-based starches because they help build leptin and thyroid hormones and they boost your metabolism when you're dieting. However, you need to combine that with a protein source to minimize the blood sugar spike and the insulin spike so that you keep your body in a fat-burning environment. So when you do that, you're much better off eating a leaner cut because when you eat a fatty cut of beef, if starch is there raising the insulin, insulin's a storage hormone. It's more likely to take that extra fat from that fatty cut of meat and actually store that fat. So the solution is you can go ahead and have fatty cuts of meat, 
you just want to keep your carbs lower in those meals. And then when you have a lean cut, you, you can go ahead and have a potato or some rice or whatever next to it, about a fist size portion of that. And now you're getting this glucose to help build those fat burning hormones. You're minimizing the blood sugar spike and you're preventing that meat from spilling over and being stored as fat. That makes sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, Joel, we're out of time. Uh, we've been speaking with Joel Marion, who's um, written a book to help people um, get control of their diet. And he's lost 46 pounds in 16 weeks. And um, we've been talking about uh, various things in the book. So Joel, tell people where they can find you and find the book. You can get a copy of the book at joelmarion.com. That's J-O-E-L-M-A-R-I-O-N.com. And then it will be available in bookstores as soon as they start reopening across the country. And the title of the book? Always Eat After 7 p.m., The Revolutionary Rule Breaking Diet That Lets You Enjoy Huge Dinners, Desserts, and Indulgent Snacks While Burning Fat Overnight. Wow, that's an incredible title, incredible title. Joel, thank you for joining us today. It's been interesting and helpful to our audience, I'm sure. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation. And I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry. And you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high time experience. Here's 420 lifestyle correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, it is a treat and a pleasure to welcome a much talented connoisseur and aficionado of cannabis, the lovely Sarah Pion. I guess she knows all things green, a writer, an educator, a social activist, host of the podcast Planted, and a cancer survivor who credits medical marijuana with helping her recover from surgery and chemotherapy. I guess we could say she talks the talk and walks the walk. And Sarah, welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation. Great to be with you here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I guess we got to start with the, the hardcore nitty gritty stuff. Colon cancer. You're a young woman. You're still a young woman, but this must have rocked your world. And, and just tell me the journey and what role the medical marijuana played for you. Sure. So um, when I was before, well, I was 36 and I was starting to get sick a lot every time I ate. And I went to the doctors and they're like, you have IBS. We'll see you when you're 50 for your colonoscopy. Um, but it, colon cancer runs in my family. My great grandmother died of it. So I, um, I was worried. They gave me smooth muscle relaxants to help with the nausea because they figured it was just IBS. And that worked for a while. Um, and then I started getting sick again. And actually a friend of mine gave me some cannabis to use at that time. And that helped me eat and not get sick. Um, but it was getting worse. So I went and got a second opinion and 
I, I've never been begged to be scoped in my life, but I did. <laughs> so I got my colonoscopy and they couldn't get, um, they couldn't get the scope past the tumor. So I ended up at 37 years old being diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. And my mom is a cancer researcher. She's recently retired, but she actually did the clinical trials on full Fox five, which is what I ended up taking. And she was the one who had told me in the past that for her patients, she had used cannabis to help with nausea um, and getting people eating again. So I was just looking at it from that perspective. I didn't realize all the things that could do. I would have done a lot of things differently, but when I was going through my journey with cancer, that's when I got my medical cannabis card because this was pre-legalization. And I did use it in, in instead of my medications because things like opiates for pain or the anti-nausea drugs, one of the side effects is constipation. And when you're going through colon cancer, that can actually kill you because you can, you can end up with sepsis. So I pretty much, you know, I replaced my opiates and anti-nausea drugs with cannabis. And then when I got done, <laughs> I uh, decided I didn't want to go back to the office after 14 years of being in management in nonprofit. And before that, in the private sector, I decided to go back to school and get my master's. And that was when I took the job at the apothecarium because I really just wanted, you know how it is, years of managing people and you just really want to have something really simple while you're going through school. And I really thought of it as being like working at a bookstore or a coffee shop, never realizing that as I was going to school for psych that I was actually finding my career at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so glad that you're here doing well. Thank and you. the plants, not pills mantra is really resonating for so many people. And for you, it may have been a, a game changer. It was, I, I had no idea. I, I understood that there were some medicinal benefits, um, but I really got it then. And then when I started working with the plant more and working with individuals, because I have over 16,000 hours of experience with human beings in cannabis, and it's not for everybody. But the things that it does to help people so that they can get off of certain medications and just get on with their lives and have a quality of life that they may not have had even with medication, most of the time it's much better, um, is amazing. And that's not to say that I have anything against traditional allopathic medicine because we have to look at our health and medicine in a more of a holistic way where it all comes into play, like more of a full picture. Yeah. Now you mentioned the apothecarium. For those not in the know, it's a very well-regarded and uh, venerable dispensary that I guess there are six outlets in San Francisco and beyond. And you're the public education officer yes. and means exactly what? <laughs> so I do all the forward-facing, public-facing education for our company. We have three dispensaries in San Francisco, one in Berkeley, one in Capitola, and we also have them in Nevada, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. So I don't do a lot on the East Coast, although a lot of East Coast people attend my classes because you can attend my classes anywhere in the world through Zoom. Every other Thursday, I do an hour public education class with Q&A and every week it's different. We have things like this week we're doing um, cannabis sleep, depression and anxiety. Uh, I do a class for cancer and cannabis. Uh, I do one on the non-euphorics. There's a, and we're doing one on cannabis and athletics next month. 
Um, and the one that's been the two that have been the most popular besides the sleep depression and anxiety, which is something that we've really needed help with in the past year has been women in cannabis. So we talk about the difference with women's bodies and estrogen levels, and that determines how they react to THC. And then sex in cannabis, which has been a really interesting one because a lot of people have come on that. And there, it's interesting because for me, I and maybe it's because I'm a nurse's child, like there's no weird questions. So people are a little bit, you know, well, should I ask this? And I'm like, ask me, no. Cannabis can't be Viagra, but it can help get you in the mood. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of the hot topics or the hot button issues that either misconceptions or the most, um, you know, the most intriguing aspects of some of those conversations. Well, you know, one of the things that I really like, you know, we talk about, you know, these populations of people and who are the latest that come to cannabis. And one of the ones that we hear about are, oh, you know, seniors, they're, they're the, the largest growing group of cannabis users. And I teach a seniors in cannabis class. And the first thing I always say in class is, all right, people, I know that they're saying that about you, but we all know that that's not true. It's that, you know, you either used cannabis, you knew somebody who did, you were in the know, but you also were living in the time where the war on drugs was serious and you kept your business to yourself. And I always get applause for that one because, you know, it's, it's just really, it's an interesting thing. Like I almost feel like it in some ways, it's like, we all need support around it. We all have different levels of expertise, but let's not infantilize people and make it like, oh, they, they're babes in the woods. They don't know anything about this. Well, you know something about it. You've known somebody who's used it if you haven't used it yourself. Now let's have a conversation about you and your body and what your expectations are. So yeah. that's one of the things I do when I talk to medical professionals too, because they'll ask me, you know, what ratio and what dosage of that ratio would you use for whatever they're mentioning. And I'll say it's, it's not as easy as that because when you come to my class, you read you know, an amazing text on cannabis or you go through research, what they're reporting back is how the majority of human beings respond. And we're walking chemistry experiments. And the thousands of people I've seen, I've had four people who have had highly unpleasant psychoactive experiences on you know, high ratio of CBD. So it really is about setting the stage for creating that safe container for experimentation. And that's a lot of the stuff that I impress upon the medical practitioners that I do lectures with. Yeah, I think that's fascinating when you're talking to professional medical uh, uh, you know, experts and you are the cannabis expert, how do you find the receptivity or do you still find there's either a preponderance of ignorance or I don't know, skepticism. How would you characterize that? There are more and more people who are open to it. It's a lot different than it was when I started almost 10 years ago in the industry. And it was really hard because we'd get people coming in with recommendations and we wouldn't be able to get the recommendations verified by the doctors because they didn't want to have that conversation. Um, It really depends on like who's the head of the the medical practice as far as like it's more of a trickle down with the culture for that practice. But I find that more and more people are curious about it, especially because their patients are coming to them 
with questions or letting them know that they're using it. So they want to know more so that they can support their patients better. There will always be physicians who will have, you know, issues with cannabis because of the stigma. The stigma has been extraordinarily strong. It's been very impactful, but especially with a lot of the younger doctors, there's a lot more openness, but that's, you know, not across the board. And I found that physicians and nurses of all ages have been really open to having the conversation. It's really about your, you know, the stigma and your personal indoctrination around that. Well, it is great that we're making some progress and tearing down some walls. But let's get into the weed of the weeds. How sure. about the broad, the CBD phenomenon, which is blowing up, but so many people are not really versed in the distinctions of broad spectrum, full spectrum, or CDB, well, well, just a lingo of it. So, so why don't you just give us a, a little broad brush on that? Yeah, sure. I actually uh, wrote an article for Cannabis Now on this. So when we're looking at broad spectrum, it's going to have a full, it'll have all the cannabinoids and terpenes with the CB, with, along with CBD, except for THC. And when we look at full spectrum, it has the full complement of cannabinoids and terpenes, including THC. So when we look at full spectrum, we'll be looking at the different ratios of CBD to THC most of the time. And broad spectrum is something that you can purchase outside of a dispensary. It'll have CBD, it'll have some lesser cannabinoids, and it'll have terpenes as well. Yeah, now you can topically apply it for arthritis or aches and pains, headaches, whatever it might be, and you can ingest it. So what about the distinction there? Because again, I think a lot of people are overwhelmed by all the newness of it and they're, they're flying blind. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of us in the industry joke about CBD being like, um, have you ever seen the film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Sure. And the dad's spring Windex on everything. <laughs> yes, it's, it's for everything. It's, it's a pretty helpful. joke. It's the a, CBD will save your marriage. It'll wash your car. It'll do everything. And it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's much more nuanced than that because, you know, as far as like arthritis, it depends on the type of arthritis. Like if you have, if you have things that are creating inflammation or nerve pain, CBD is going to help you. Chances are you're going to want to have some THC in there because THC is what behaves as the analgesic. But when you're using any sort of cannabis or hemp product topically, unless you're dealing with something that's transdermal, there's not going to be any euphoric effects. And then when you take something internally, it's going to be more systemic. So you're going to get more relief throughout your body. But CBD is better for things like um, anxiety. Um, I use it for, I have neuropathy left over from chemo. So I use a two to one CBD to THC ratio instead of my pain, pain medication to help with that. Um, you can use it for inflammation, certain types of pain, anxiety. I know people who get great relief using high CBD ratios to help with things like migraines. So there's a lot of different things it can do, but it doesn't do everything. And it's not necessarily going to help with every pain. And a lot of people use it for sleep. And unless you have pain that CBD can address, that's keeping you up, or maybe you have a really busy, anxious mind, chances are CBD isn't going to help you as much as having a THC to CBD ratio. Sure. 
And, and what about this CBD isolate? That's a whole nother world. Isolate is an interesting thing because you know, some people say that it works well for them and I'm never going to knock that because I'm always leaning in. It's like, I'm constantly proven wrong by different, you know, different body chemistries. Like I used to say CBD by itself doesn't do anything. Well, that's not true for people who are THC naive or can't have THC metabolites for them. It, there are some things that it may help with. It may help with, you know, anxiety and stuff like that, but CBD by itself doesn't do a whole lot. What we are looking at is we want to have the synergy of the cannabinoids and terpenes working together, which is what we refer to as the entourage effect, because it's kind of like um, when pharmacists and researchers realized that THC helped with appetite. So they decided, oh, we're going to take this Delta 9 THC and we're going to synthesize it. We're going to make Marinol. Well, Marinol by itself doesn't work really well for a lot of people. I actually, my mom was doing cancer research in Dallas while I was going through treatment and I didn't want to travel with my cannabis. So I got a prescription for Marinol and I basically lost my weekend with my mom because I was just a crabby, groggy mess the whole time. And the reason is, is because you see people, you see researchers saying, this is the active ingredient. This is exactly what we need. We're going to take this out the rest of its trash but they're not realizing that every, all the other components of the plant actually work together to create the effects. So CBD right. isolate isn't necessarily useless, but it's not going to be as useful as something that has the full complement of cannabinoids and terpenes. Yeah, now you mentioned Delta-9. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Because Delta-8 was a big hot topic recently. Sure. And uh, for the uninitiated and, and the non-aficionado, where are we going with this? What, what does that mean? Because there's a legality question too in states that do not permit recreational marijuana use. Right. And also when you're looking at the states that don't have recreational uh, cannabis use, you're also looking at the one thing that they're not actually watching the products and regulating them. So Delta-9 THC is what we, what we normally just refer to as THC. Delta-8 is a cannabinoid that has a little bit more of a fuzzy, buzzy body feel. So for people who are nervous about getting paranoid or anxious using THC, Delta-8 normally doesn't create that. Now, the Delta-8 that we're seeing in unregulated markets where there isn't recreational cannabis available is synthesized from CBD. And... I really, and this is a personal opinion, but I'm really not into synthesizing cannabinoids. I think it's dangerous in some ways. It's not regulated. When we're looking at products that we're purchasing outside of a dispensary, whether it be Delta-8 or CBD, we really have to be careful with who's growing it and who's making it because hemp and cannabis are the same plant. They're bioaccumulators. Whatever they grow it in, whatever they grow it around, whatever they grow it with is going to be leached by that plant. And in turn, we ingest that. And when we're in markets where there's no regulations, there's no testing for heavy metals, molds, mildews, funguses, and even the cannabinoid counts. So it's not necessarily what they say it is, and it can be harmful if there are adulterants in it. So 
I always tell people, because I have clients in my private practice that are in markets where cannabis isn't legal and they want to use CBD. It's not that you can't use these products, but you want to make sure that you're working with a company that can actually give you a certificate of analysis. Well, you're just a fountain of information and great stuff. No wonder why the Green Market Report voted you among the top 100 most important women in weed last year. What an honor. Right? It was great. an honor. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Well, you've you just been awesome. Great catching up with you, Sarah. We'll yeah, link our web where we can uh, find you and hear you on your planted podcast, which I've really enjoyed. We turn the tables. Uh, you go from interviewer to interviewee, but you, you're, you're a rock star. And I, awesome, awesome uh, work and, and continued great success. Sarah Pion uh, with us today on the W420 Radio Network. You want to hear it again or you missed, you want to hear some excerpts, W420 Radio Network slash archive. I'm Rich Walkoff. Thanks for listening and thank you, Sarah. And we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation, and joining us today is Dustin McDonald, who is the Interim Public Policy Director for the Americans for Safe Access Organization. Welcome to the conversation, Dustin. My pleasure. So let's start off with the idea. We have, I think you said to me off the air that there were like 34 states that now have um, medical uh, available and there are uh, lots of people that are questioning whether or not these dispensaries, when they're added to the local economy, can actually generate enough tax revenue to make it worthwhile. There are other people who are saying that it's an important source of, of, of tax revenue to the states and perhaps local governments. It's jobs. It's everything we need because of the pandemic. Does your organization have a position on this? I think as far as a position, it's more of a an acknowledgement and recognition of the marketplace as it exists in different states today and the mm -hmm. direction that marketplace is going. And ultimately, how do we produce a marketplace that, as it's organized, is capable of, of providing consistent, affordable, um, reliable, and safe medication for patients. And I think right now from a medical standpoint, that's not happening in most places. And that's due to a number of factors that you mentioned with respect to taxes, for example. Um, I think a lot of states might be looking at um, basically anywhere they can because of the COVID pandemic, most state and local governments, the federal government to be included, will experience a far lower volume of tax receipts coming in from businesses, from individuals than they're used to, and we can expect economies to suffer because of that. In this last election, we saw some states 
a number of local governments take a look at running cannabis ballot initiatives, either for tax purposes or for full-scale licensing and tax, as a way to generate revenue. But I would say to that that there are a lot of, there have been a lot of approaches to how taxes are organized on the industry. Most of them don't really function in a way that's good for the businesses, good for the community, um, or good for for patients. So what I mean by that is the tax rates are typically too high, or the mm-hmm. state entertains a tax rate that offers locals an, an opportunity to tax at whatever rate they see fit. In California, for example. A patient, or let's say you're an adult use consumer um, and you can't secure a medical card, um, then you're paying anywhere between 40 and in some cases 75% above retail market rates once you layer on state taxes and local taxes. That's mm. not a realistic marketplace for anybody. Mm. For the businesses, you can't expect, patient, you can't expect consumers to return <laughs> when you've got tax rates that high. You're, you're not going to be able to reach the large, a large population of consumers because a good portion of them won't be able to afford that product. And then we have to also acknowledge where the taxes are coming from. They're coming from licensed businesses, and in most cases, states have not done a good job at licensing a sufficient number of these businesses uh, to satisfy the marketplace, to satisfy consumers, and it's, and it's not um, founded in an understanding of how the marketplace existed prior to legalization. California is a perfect example there as well. You had a very large and sophisticated illegal marketplace combined with um, a collective model that existed since 1996 under Prop 215. Um, So there was a large and functional marketplace that was completely gutted once legalization was applied to California, both medical and adult use. And I think in the wake of that, you have a large volume of unlicensed businesses because most California cities and counties, two-thirds of them, in fact, have opted not to license legal retail, which means that you have a giant thriving illegal market that costs right. governments money to police against. Uh, at the same time, to your point, if governments were willing to license more of these businesses and create a functional marketplace for the businesses, for patients, for consumers, I think you would be witnessing two things, higher incoming tax rates for governments, allowing them to create more proficient programs, and you'd also see lower illegal market rates um, so governments are spending less money trying to police that illegal market. So there's a lot of market organization that still needs to, uh, to occur, and governments have a central role in creating that marketplace so it works, and we need a lot more of them to start doing that. seems to me that there's a huge change coming in the cannabis distribution side with the elimination of building these expensive dispensaries in lieu of lower prices and better delivery right to your home. Have you followed this at all? Oh, yes. God bless you for raising this topic, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think you touched on a lot of great things here. So let's start with COVID and drive into delivery. So on COVID, I think one of the things that we tried to highlight in the state of the state's report was that this year, a lot of states had ambitious plans on cannabis that they were forced to set down because they had to focus all their attention on navigating the COVID pandemic and trying to help taxpayers through that. But one of the bright spots that we saw in lieu of a lot of the state reforms that were pending was states, one, declaring cannabis businesses essential. That's huge because it illustrates 
the one integration of cannabis businesses into the traditional business community, but also awareness among lawmakers and regulators that patients need access to these businesses um, during a pandemic. And you cannot uh, force these patients to forgo medicine just as you wouldn't force a patients who relied on FDA-approved pharmaceutical products that they buy at a pharmacy to forgo their medicine during a pandemic. So that was positive. To your point, we also saw a number of those states, 33 of them, in fact, organized specific policies to both promote safety of, of patient and adult use consumers, as well as try to extend more functional access and save patients money. So let's run through those real quick. So on the safety side, you saw a number of states, as I mentioned, there were 33 of them that organized specific policies like this for COVID. Many organized curbside pickup, enabling patients to go to a legal storefront, have uh, somebody from the store bring their medicine out to their car and conduct a transaction there and move on, limiting close contact. Then you also saw authorization of delivery to your point. Now, delivery was a newer licensing category within the last couple of years. Of course, you saw it emerge in California, Massachusetts, and other markets, too. Um, as a patient advocate, I think this is exactly what's necessary. These exact kind of services already exist and have existed for a long time for patients who are using pharmaceutical products that you get from a pharmacy. I think what we're striving for ultimately as a patient advocacy organization is to encourage states to create parity between the traditional pharmaceutical model and the cannabis model. Ultimately, that's the level of parity, that's the level of convenience, affordability, and access that's legal that we want to see for patients. You saw a lot of states organize features for delivery uh, under COVID. And so what we've been advocating for since then um, is for states to maintain these programs. We heard an earful from patients when we did our survey this year um, advocating for just that. Many states um, had been kicking around these ideas for a little bit. Patients advocacy groups had been asking states for these kinds of uh, program reforms and new features for a long time. COVID gave states a chance to experiment with them and really see how they worked. And I think the experiment was a positive one. So we're definitely encouraging states um, to retain that feature. You mentioned California. You've got 25 states in California, or 25 cities in California that are suing the state because the state interpreted California's laws to permit delivery to patients and adult use consumers legally, of course, even if they don't live in a city that has licensed any cannabis businesses, especially retail. I think that's a, it's, it's a kooky uh, notion that California cities are driving forward that their, their legal right to local control should trump patients' ability to secure safe and legal access to cannabis. It's a problem in California. It's a problem in Massachusetts. It's a problem in a number of other markets who have basically utilized local control laws to directly discriminate against patients. So um, that's something that ASA feels very strongly about, something we'll continue to work with states to try to unstick and try to work with local governments as well. I think from a local government standpoint, there are a lot of obstacles to approaching this policy space. It is a starting point, and it's a good starting point. Still, you have a very closely divided Congress um, that, you know, to your point, as we started this discussion, might be a little unwilling to wade into a controversial topic like cannabis, despite the voter sentiment. So I think it's, very, it's incumbent upon Americans for Safe Access, our coalition partner, industry, advocates across the country to continue applying the pressure 
to Congress letting them know that they've got support back at home to make the right decisions on reforming cannabis. So a long way to go, but I think this session offers the brightest opportunity for it that we've seen. Well, thank you, Dustin, for being with us. We had Dustin McDonald, who was the interim policy director for Americans for Safe Access. Dustin, tell people how they can get a hold of your organization and follow what you're doing. For folks who want to plug into everything that Americans for Safe Access has going on, learn about our campaigns, follow along to what's happening at the federal level with respect to legislation uh, and regulations, the same thing at state levels, go ahead and get over to safeaccessnow.org. That's safeaccessnow.org, and you can take a look at all the free content we have there, um, education and training materials, as well as information and update about what's happening legislatively and regulatorily. So, Thank you so much again for the time. Thank you for joining us today, Dustin. Thanks a lot, Dan. W420RadioNetwork.com.